Thank you. Well, just a super crowd tonight. Thank you so much uh, for being here. You are in for a treat. Uh, I'm so glad to introduce to you my friend, uh, Adam Young, who I have known since uh, our days in Birmingham. I'll tell you that story in just a minute. But I wanted to say next week, uh, all the youth will be in here because Bethany wants to show off her daddy, the Reverend Dr. Uh, Duke Dixon. Uh, he is a Presbyterian minister in Maryland. Has, he is coming down to visit his daughter, our youth minister. And, um, and he has done a lot of thinking about and work with some folks uh, who think about whether or not when we reach out and help others, is it actually helping? Uh, he worked with some folks that wrote a book called, that some of you may know called uh, Toxic Charity. And the idea is uh, when we are um, giving things away, as Jesus commands us to, um, are, we, um, are we enabling or con- continuing the pattern of poverty, or are we helping them to get a leg up? I'm very interested to hear what he has to say. I've not read that book, but I've read another book similar um, called When Helping Hurts. So the question that Dr. Dixon uh, who I think strongly prefers to be called Duke, uh, what he will be uh, asking is, uh, does helping always help? So come and find out. Uh, the next week, there will be our, there will only two more. Uh, Justin Holcomb will be here from the Diocese of Central Florida talking about, he was here with us last year, and uh, he'll be talking about um, evidence for the resurrection. Uh, we're just, just ahead of Easter. But tonight is great. So Adam Young was a, a pastor in Birmingham in another denomination and just kind of found himself drawn, as some often are, to the liturgy of the Episcopal Church and to the just, it just felt better. It felt like a, a, a better fit um, when he buttoned it up and it felt, wor- felt like it uh, matched his, his uh, the sleeves were the right length. So uh, he found his way into the Episcopal Church, uh, but his, um, he went through ordination in the Diocese of Central Florida. We had a connection, but, um, but he got a job for a season at the cathedral in Birmingham while we were there together. It was unfortunately not my idea to put his name in the hat uh, for uh, the University of Florida. I wish that it had been. I didn't know that he uh, would, would have um, been interested, but I'm so glad one of our mutual friends did, and uh, I could not have been more excited when I heard that he had taken uh, this call, I feel so good uh, about our students who go uh, to Gainesville, as well as I do this, our students who go to Tallahassee, the Episcopal ministers, and both of those places are fantastic. And we're actually re-energizing our ministry at UNF. So um, college ministry is an important part of the diocese. Uh, but as you may uh, be aware, uh, I'm sure you are aware, these guys and gals, they work in a very pluralistic uh, culture of uh, an idea, lots and lots and lots of ideas floating around. That's because the whole build, the whole town of Gainesville is built on on ideas, and uh, and so uh, the question I've asked Adam to tackle tonight is: uh, Can there possibly be only one way to heaven? And I didn't tell him what to say, so we'll have to see. We'll have to see. So Adam, come on up here. This is my friend. If you're wondering who the hip-looking priest is, that's uh, Adam Young. Uh, he still has all his hair, unlike your priests, sadly. All right, so I'm going to give this to you, and you can talk 
for almost an hour, but you have to be done at 7.44. Yeah. All right. Oh, uh, it's upside down. He went to Georgia. So. <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't teach us about things it's, like it's that. geometry. Yeah, yeah. All right. Cool, man. Oh, Thanks, hey, Joe. You, I, you need me to What's that? find a, a projector? And That's, it's all right. I'll, I'll go without it, but I do have my notes are on the um, PowerPoint. So it's a PowerPoint presentation that unfortunately we won't get to see. But um, I didn't let Joe know that I was doing that. So it's not his. Uh, thanks. That's, that works. Keep me from looking too awkward. In this way, you can't uh, see my password. Oh, where are we at? Apparently we need a little more volume. Microphones don't always agree with me. I was at the cathedral in Orlando. I was always the one popping the mic. I've actually, uh, my wife had me shave my beard down. Sometimes it gets a little too wiry and gets into the microphone and things like that. Can everybody hear me now? Okay. All right. Um, let me offer a prayer for us. This is from the first Sunday after Pentecost, Trinity Sunday. Almighty and everlasting God, You have given to us, your servants, grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thought it appropriate to start with a prayer on the Trinity and especially about the exclusivity of the claims that Jesus makes. So Jesus in a pluralistic society, um, how can an exclusive claim really be good news? It sounds so, um, you know, it can sound a little bit judgy or exclusive, maybe arrogant to say, we have truth. Because after all, who's to say those that follow Muhammad don't have truth? Who's to say that those who follow Hinduism or other Eastern religions don't have truth? Who's to say an agnostic scientist who's a materialist can't find truth? Or who's to say the guy who just likes to go fishing and golfing on Sundays instead of come into a church building can't find truth? Uh, It's, what about carpe diem, just seize the day? We're in a world that's very much, um, people are competing for truth claims everywhere. And we're in a very permissive world culture in the West, in the United States, in many ways. We we like to pride ourselves on being inclusive. And this is very much the the case on a university campus. I imagine it's the case in a lot of places in Jacksonville where you spend a lot of your time, um, that we want to be inclusive of others. Um, Now, I am working primarily at University of Florida with a lot of millennials and with a lot of Generation Z or iGen as they're also called. You know, they're tech natives. They've never known a time when they couldn't access at the speed of a click things in, in the device in their pocket, okay? So they are tech um, natives. 
And, and so, but they've grown up in a world that's very full and rife with conflict. And they're, and they're highly, highly aware of it, okay? So whether it was that fateful day on 9-11, um, 18 years ago, whether it's uh, terrorist attacks in other parts of the world by ISIS, whether it's shootings in nightclubs here in our own soil, uh, they're used to seeing the headlines, right? Here's some of the headlines I put on a uh, slide here. 84 dead in Nice. 40 killed in Paris carnage. Bloody Sunday in the Palm Sunday Massacre. None of us will ever forget. Okay, these are the kinds of headlines that regularly um, come across the screen and we almost become numb to it. But it's culture, our culture is very full and we're aware of violence and of conflict. Um, Halloween night, the students um, in my ministry, we went out on our lawn and set up with lights and had a fire pit and some tables and chairs sitting around and we had music playing and we just wanted to, and then the students, they actually built a door frame because we found an old door and so one of our engineering students built a whole door frame so we sat this, set this door up on the sidewalk and I think they put boo knock on the door or something and so people, all the, all the UF community that was going out that night, uh, they were dressed up in their crazy costumes going to the bars, right, right, which are right on the same strip as where the Chapel of the Incarnation is. And they would knock on the door and then one of the students would open it up and have a bowl of candy. And so they would kind of do this trick-or-treat thing, passing out candy, and just, just interacting with people as they're going to the bar and as they stumbled out of the bar. So I was out there until about one in the morning and as the bars were kind of, um, people were leaving and they were inebriated, they'd come by and sit down and talk to us. We had some very religious conversations around a, a fire pit with, with people wearing onesie snuggy things, you know, and whatever crazy outfits they were wearing. But afterwards, we were putting up chairs because we had taken them out of the chapel on the lawn. And um, this girl came up to me and she stood right up next to my face and... She said, is this, do you believe in a loving God? And I said, well, yeah, hello there, I do. And I backed up and she took another step forward. So she's right in my face. She said, uh, is this a place that would accept me? And I said, of course, this is a place that would accept you. You know, Jesus welcomes all people. And she said, and this was, if you remember, Halloween was the week after the um, terror attack in the synagogue up in uh, Pittsburgh. She said, I'm Jewish. I'm from a Jewish family. I don't really practice religion, but we're Jewish. And there was an attack. Why do people hate? Why is there such evil in the world? We started to have a dialogue, but she wasn't really holding on to the words I was saying. And it was pretty fluid, as you can imagine. But there was a sincerity to her engagement there. She was asking a real question that she couldn't get her mind around. Why do people do such evil? And can you accept me? You see, with, with all the conflict and divisions, international on a global scale, attacks, there's, there's a keen awareness of zealousness or extremism, being somehow religious thought is dangerous when taken too far. 
And that's how people feel about it. So they're going, hey, temper what you feel. And if, you believe, if you're making a claim about truth, I, get, I better be careful because I'm not sure if I fit into your box of what that means because they experience the hostility. And so they've, this, this generation has inherited a culture of the privatization of belief that, hey, what's true for you is true for you, What I think is true is true for me, but let's leave it there. Let's not make value judgments on that. If it's true for you, let it stay there. If it's true for me, let it stay there. Um, Because they're trying to keep conflict at a minimum. They don't really like conflict in that respect. Um, There's there's an area on University of Florida campus where the street preachers set up and... um, the students talk about this all the time because they'll be like, oh, the, the, the megaphone guy was out there again today or the screaming lady was there today. And it's this area in Turlington, um, which is the name of a building, and there's this passageway where many, many students pass. And they said, oh, yeah, and it happens in Turlington. These people will get up on a, on a chair or something with a megaphone and start calling people out, sinner, you need to repent. And they'll have signs with specific sins on them. And, hey, if you're doing these things, college students, you're going to hell, right? So when these students are hearing exclusive claims about what's true or what God wants or what God thinks, they're picturing you screaming at them with a megaphone going, with a finger pointed out going, you're wrong. They feel personally attacked and it's repulsive to them because they're going, why can't we just get along? It's kind of like a stay in your lane, guys. Stay in your lane kind of attitude. So along with this idea that my beliefs are private and they belong to me and your beliefs are private and they belong to you, there is this like moral relativism because we're all, we all just want to get along. So like th- this is just going to be relative to you and your individual choice. And as long as it doesn't infringe on somebody else's rights, then it's, it's cool. You know, if you want to do weird things on your own in a closet by yourself, go for it. I can't say whether or not that's good or bad. It might be weird, but I can't say it's wrong. Um, a lot of people in this age bracket are reticent to call anything wrong on its own, unless it imposes on the rights of another person to exercise their freedom. Uh, that's just an observation I've made. Um, and so here's the thing. Nobody really wants to be judgy, because they think if you, if you put forward a truth claim, it feels as though it's an attack on my personal choices. So can you, can you see where I'm going with this? When we're talking about, is Jesus the only way? The, the moment we say there's a way and a truth and a life, and it's found in the personhood of Jesus Christ, it means it excludes all these other people. And how dare somebody exclude others from the happy hug fest of, can't we all just get along? It's a difficult predicament to be in. And so the sin in our culture is to offend somebody. It's like the worst thing you can do. Um, People go go out of their way not to judge and not to offend. That's where we're at in public discourse. And it's no wonder, right, that given the political cycles that we've just been through, we seem to have a hard time listening to people who disagree with us. I'm going to say more about that in a few minutes. Um, 
I'm going to be tying this topic to evangelism because I think it had, they have something to say to inform one another. The word, when I say evangelism, do you get a little squeamish? It's okay to admit this is a safe place. Or do you go, yeah, rock on, that's me. Or do you go, oh, that's a special gift that Pastor Joe has, <laughs> right? Um, evangelism can like elicit in people a real um, reaction. And it's kind of like um, there's baggage that comes with it, okay? And the baggage is that evangelism is seen right now in our culture to try to convert somebody to your point of view. It's an indictment of the very people you're talking to. It feels like you're telling them you're wrong and you're bad and you need to change. And people don't like that. That feels judgy and offensive. Um, Barna study, uh, Barna does a lot of these different um, studies on culture and the church, and um, they recently released a new one um, here at the beginning of this year on evangelism. And listen to this, 40% of millennials believe if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. So in other words, to disagree with somebody means, oh, I'm being judged by you. Um, now, that's probably going to sound weird to the boomer generation. Only 9% of boomers think that, that that's a judgment on your personal self. But do you hear that? In our culture, because of all the conflict and all the screaming and yelling and all the social media posts and all the inability to listen to one another, People feel like if you disagree with my point of view, you're attacking me. Right? Can you see this in our culture? I can. Um, see, because you're questioning the personal choices of others. And again, that's judging a personal choice. You have no grounds on which to judge someone's personal choice. Um, and so, according to Barna, 47% of millennials, therefore, believe it's wrong to evangelize to try to convert somebody to your point of view. Kind of like, let's let bygones be bygones, and you go your way, and I'll go mine. Now, what does this have to do with the topic Joe gave me? You might be like, we're off in the weeds somewhere. It has to do with the fact that in cultural memory, we've lost a sense of that dreaded S word. There's an S word. Sin. See, the biblical concepts for sin have completely been eroded from our public discourse and consciousness. Now, we have certain things that we think are sins. Racism is a sin. Everybody acknowledges these things, right? Um, oppressing somebody is a sin. Um, but see, the biblical concept of sin is that all of us, every human being, is actually living under the oppressive power of sin, we're under the dominion of sin. That's how the Bible talks about it. A vandalization of shalom. There's a mouthful for you. Use that at your next dinner party. Shalom being the, 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 the Hebrew sense of wholeness and peace and goodness being vandalized. We find that in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve choose to not trust that God is good and wants what's good for them, but maybe he's holding out on them. And what that introduced was the thorns and thistles and pain and disruption and fraying of relationship. 
It was something that frayed from the inside out every aspect of living in a world that's now tainted and marred by sin. So so we're being talked about in the Bible actually as being in bondage to the power of sin. And that's something that doesn't get talked about in our culture. You do you, I do me, we'll stay in our lanes and everything will be groovy. Except it's not. You see, the Christian story of what we're talking about when we say who goes to heaven doesn't make sense without a real understanding of sin. It just doesn't. Because the gospel is not good information, helpful tips to make your life cheery and happy, ways for you to just be better and be nicer. That's not what the gospel is. It's that God has saved us who can't save ourselves. And so, saved from what and to what end? Again, why should I give myself to, um, to this Jesus idea when I don't even believe that sin is a thing that I struggle with? Sin in our culture is what bad people who do bad things, but it's not me, because I'm right. Right? So this, the, this very idea of sin kind of sounds immoral to the contemporary ear um, because it violates our core value because it seems to encourage this cycle of judgmentalism and, um, and a repression or not accepting others as they are. Again, kind of like the, most, the worst sin you can, you can commit is to um, judge somebody. Um, and so I think recovering this idea of sin is actually crucial to answering this question of how do you go to heaven? Because who, who needs to go to heaven if they don't need to be delivered from anything? If it's just about, oh, just living your best life now. Um, so, so how do I get into heaven? That was asked by an older generation. That, that's not the question people are asking right now on, on the whole. Some people are asking that, but that, that's a boomer Gen X kind of question and way to phrase it. Um, millennials and, and, and tech natives, they're asking, what does it look like for me to thrive as a human being? That's the question. Because again, they don't have this innate sense of a concept of sin. That, that, that's their problem. Sin is a problem out there for those people. So they're not asking, how do I get to heaven? They're asking, how do I thrive in a world that seems to keep me from thriving. Um, So there's a crisis on university campuses about mental health, well-being, and and it goes like this. Um, 80% of college students feel overwhelmed by their responsibilities. 45% feel hopeless in the face of a daunting workload. University of Florida is number eight... um, on the, US, the latest U.S. News and World Report in terms of quality public educations, world-class programs, and I'm seeing this. I went to University of Georgia, Joe's right, I could have never gotten into UF today. Um, and college for me was just like fun and friends and relationship, and maybe I'll go to class, but I'll kind of pass, C's get degrees, it's Georgia, who cares? These students are coming in with their AAs as 17 and 18-year-olds 
driven to get two degrees, major in two things, minor in one thing, set themselves up for the right graduate program and the PhD track so that they can get the career path that they want because they've been told all along they need to get on that hamster wheel and run really fast and perform. And it, it, UF is hard to get into and it's hard to stay in. Um, it, it is a challenging environment. Um, in fact, I've gotten to know the uh, director of the Counseling and Wellness Center at UF. He is a fine Christian man. And he told me that in three years running, he's seen an increase in mental health intakes. And anxiety disorders are off the charts. Almost one in three students I talk to are on some kind of prescribed medication. Um... So I put a picture on this um, slideshow that I wish I could show you, but picture this, a college-age girl sitting on her bed holding a sign. And the sign, it says, I'm fine. And then in faded pictures around her head are pictures of her pulling her hair out screaming, putting a gun to her head with her fingers like this, weeping uncontrollably. I'm fine. I'm holding it together. Everything's okay. But inside it's not. There's a ginormous gap between the, what they present out there and the things that keep them on their phones up until all hours of the night because they can't let themselves rest in their beds because they're scared and terrified to be alone with their own thoughts. So that's why I had a young girl, we'll call her Abby, say, hey, can we meet Pastor Adam? And we met. She's a freshman, AD Pi, the it sorority, cute as a button, social world has it going on, boyfriend, great grades. She broke down crying and said, I feel so hopeless. I feel hopeless all the time, and I don't know what to do. She's had to medically withdraw from UF this semester. Thank God she's getting help. It's overwhelming. How do I thrive as a human being? That's the question their hearts are longing to ask. They're not thinking about who gets to heaven, though that's in there. That's part of the question. They're asking, how do you thrive in a world that seems to be crushing me at every turn? See, there's been a shift in our culture that's been really subtle, and I'm only beginning to really grasp it being on this university campus. See, formerly our culture was a guilt and innocence culture. In other words, to make a mistake in a guilt culture, it means you made a mistake. It was a mistake. But what we're dealing with now, what young people are in, is a shame and honor culture. We're, we're shifting. The shift's already really taking place in a lot of ways. And listen to this. In a shame culture, when you make a mistake, it means you are a mistake. There's no grace. Aren't we seeing that in gotcha journalism? Who's the next one that's going to fall? We're just waiting. And it's going to wipe out a legacy of great art, great music, great accomplishments. And that's not to bypass or dismiss the horrific things we're hearing about in Finding Neverland or 
R. Kelly or whoever else. I'm not dismissing that. But if you make a mistake, you're a mistake. And that's the pressure that young people are living in now. There's no room to mess up. So telling me, like, God forgives me, I feel like if I, just, if I step the wrong way, it's all going to crumble. If I don't keep up the grades, if I don't do the thing, if I don't pursue the right career track, if I don't seem to thrive, if my life doesn't match my Instagram account, what am I going to do? They need grace so badly, but they don't have the language for it because they don't understand sin. Okay, it's a top that off. <laughs> this is, I, I tell people I, when I'm, uh, uh, Chapel of the Incarnation sits right across University Avenue from the West Library at University of Florida, just down the street from the swamp, right in the middle of everything. We're right by the Chipotle. So much traffic right there. Everybody's eating Chipotle like crazy. It's a real blessing. We are in a dynamic spot. But when I look out, I just think of Jesus sitting on the hill overlooking Jerusalem and weeping because he sees sheep without a shepherd. And I'm not just talking about the students. I'm talking about the advisors, the professors, the staff and faculty. It's a lot of pressure. You probably feel it too. So on top of that, what we have is what we're seeing is a faulty sense of leadership. We have terrible examples of what servant, lead, servant leadership should be. Whether it's the 2008 financial crisis and crash of um, you know, um, Wall Street um, getting bailed out, um, getting paid hefty bonuses after <laughs> so many people went under. They're seeing these headlines, right? They're seeing um, bombastic mudslinging by our politicians. Name-calling, again, making a mistake means you are a mistake. Not only did you do something wrong, but you're evil and dangerous and ought to be distrusted. And it comes from both sides, and it's crossfire all the time. That's what our news cycle is right now. And then we have church abuse, sex scandals. How are people to trust the message coming from a church that's saying one thing over here and doing dark and disastrous things over here and covering them up? There's an incongruency. So just to say, you need to believe this doctrine, they're going to say, from that corrupt institution? Again, if you make a mistake, you are a mistake. The institution, maybe it's a mistake. They, they have all these things going on. They're in conflict all the time. Who will deliver us from this bondage of sin and death? As Paul would say. See, this generation is reacting to this. And you've probably heard the old adage like, it takes like up to seven positive messages to undo a, a negative one, negative one. As a parent, I just, oh, I groan about that. Because if I was to tape record my conversations with my kids or the ways I get at them and I snap at them and you got to do this and come on, do better. It's more negative messaging than positive. How do we undo that? 
And the only answer I have to go to, and this is coming to the question Joe wanted me to talk about, (laughs) is true servant leadership, which is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is a person in a story that he's unfolding and unveiling before us. Jesus of Nazareth. See, there's, there's, the pressure is off here because as Paul articulates in um, Philippians 2, this great saying about Jesus Christ. He tells the Philippians and us, the church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In just two weeks, Holy Week, you will likely remember on Maundy Thursday that final meal scene, Jesus and his disciples in the upper room just minutes before he's going to be betrayed in the hands of sinful men in order to be thrown in prison, tried unjustly, flogged mercilessly, mocked and ridiculed and spat upon. He gets down on bended knee and washes his disciples' feet. Jesus' ministry had a U-shape. He who lived in the most exclusive neighborhood in all the cosmos, left the glory of his father to come down, be born of a woman in a barnyard. He trod our earth, got dirt between his toes, got down among the masses, touched the unclean, finally culminating in his being killed in a sinner's death. One that the Hebrews would have said, he's accursed of God. That's who God raises up. One who serves like that. As Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to take or to point and shake or to say straighten up and pay attention and clean your life up and get better and do right came to offer himself as a sacrifice the most beautiful life that could ever be lived and his reward was getting nailed to a Roman cross do you see the contrast between how our leaders lead and how the God of the universe leads he who has every reason to spit upon us Peel us off like gum off of, our, off of his shoe. He comes down and he loves us and he gets close to us. That's what the incarnation means. He joins us in the plight, in the struggle. He becomes oppressed for us. How is Jesus the only way to heaven? Any religious system, I don't care what it is, any of the major world religions, a personal life hack, a philosophy of this is is what works for me. These are timeless principles, right? They might be good advice. They might make life work better. I don't know. But the focus is on you and what you do. Follow these principles. 
do these prayers, do these fasts, do these acts, amend your life this way, go through these 12 steps. Any religion, that's what it is. It's about you and what you can do. When we say Jesus is the only way, we're just simply saying, look at what God has done. Rest from your labors, weary one. You can get off that hamster treadmill. The performance anxiety you feel, you don't have to prove who you are to anybody, least of all God. See, it's truth has arrived in a person. That's why we say the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. These are acts done by God in history. He entered in and did something. They're not timeless principles to be um, used to manipulate and make life better. It's God acting on our behalf for us, for us, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, U-shape. Then he was ascended up to the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He's acted in history. This isn't a religion. This isn't a teaching This isn't good advice. This is the gospel. So what do we do with these contradicting faiths? Do better, do stuff, fix your life, amend yourself. God has acted. Well, we could conflate them. Be like, ah, all roads lead to Rome, right? That's the nice thing to say. It sounds good. Ah, they're the same. Jesus, no Jesus, Whatever. But if you conflate them, you're going to do violence to the integrity of one or likely both of these ideas. You can't have both of these ideas co-mingling because one is going to inevitably override the other one. (laughs) In other words, you figure out what's good for you and that's better than Jesus. Right? Um, it's worth mentioning that syncretism, basically blending faith in Yahweh, faith in God with any other religion in the Old Testament, that was condemned by God, by the prophets. Read, read the um, minor and major prophets of the Old Testament. They were continually trying to say, stop, don't go that way. Tear down those, those Asherah poles, you know. Stop offering sacrifices to Baal. That's not Yahweh. That's not true religion. Um, and that's why, also why we have the letters, the epistles in the New Testament, basically fixing bad practices and beliefs in the early church, like, coming back to who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf and how our life should then live in light of that. So we're in this pluralistic society. Coexisting is essential, right? Coexisting is absolutely essential in a pluralistic, multicultural society. We exist as one voice among many. Anybody is free to express their opinion to the contrary, right? Um... There was a, Bab- any of you seen Babylon B, the website before? It, it's kind of like The Onion, but for Christian stuff, it makes fun of everything, and I mean everything. Uh, one, <laughs> one of the articles I saw recently was, the, the headline was this, 
universalist looking for doctor who affirms all treatments lead to the same cure. So, for instance, I have a virus, but I want to take an antibiotic. I mean, you can take an antibiotic when you have a virus. I don't know what the correlation is there. Okay? So, um, in other words, all roads leading to Rome, maybe, is... Uh, that's not what Christianity is expressly teaching. Um, the apostles, when they preached in Acts, they always lifted up Jesus and his work um, as living a perfect life, dying on the cross, and being raised from the dead. They focused a lot on him being raised from the dead. That's a big deal. So come in two weeks when Justin Holcomb talks about proofs for the resurrection of the dead. There's actually credible, real, historical proof of these things. It, it's, it's not just a blind leap into the dark, in other words. Um, Acts 4.12, there's this from the Apostle Peter. Because in the name of Jesus Christ, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. It's pretty black and white in the book of Acts. No other name. Not Buddha, not Mohammed, not your neighbor Fred. Okay? No other name. Um... Oh, okay, and so, so hear, hear this passage from um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And here's the simplicity of our faith boiled down. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. Look it up, please, in the Bible. I'm, I'm not making this up. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's just passing it on. He's the messenger. I heard it, and I'm saying it. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, he historically died for our sins on the cross. He was buried. He was, he was dead dead. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve. Every week when we come to worship, when we're saying the Nicene Creed, don't go into the creed coma and just mumbling. Na, 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 na. What we're reading is antagonistic, provocative. Um, it is an uprising against a disorderly world that would seek to oppress such knowledge. You're doing a subversive act when you're saying the creed. It's, it's really important, actually, what we're saying in the creed. Um, okay, how are we on time, Joe? Oh, it's... I want to leave time for questions. Um, all right, here's something, just a way forward. Okay, uh, in light of this, there's conflict there, there's tension. If I was God, maybe I would have done it differently. I have other ideas, maybe, but I'm just I'm communicating to you what the Christian tradition has said. Now, there have been those in the Christian tradition that have tried to, you know, that, that are able to create more elasticity here. Um, so you might be, so like, I'm it's okay to push back on me. Deal. Talk to Joe afterwards if you have any problems with what I said. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, cause I recognize what I'm saying can be really controversial. Um, and so I'm, I'm saying some of this with a little bit of provocative nature because we really need to listen to what our faith really does say. Um, 
I, th- I think it's the way forward in our culture is to be generous Christians. That means less of this. Those Republicans are terrible. Those liberals. Less of that and maybe more face-to-face. Hey, I feel like we disagree on this, but I know you as a person, and I know there's got to be common ground here. What does it look like for us to like live in fellowship and to respect each other without feeling like I'm offended that you have a belief? Why can't that be okay that like we actually we're two people made in God's image who have two different ideas about this? Um, so in other words, not, not kind of conflating everything into an interfaith, kumbaya, we're all singing to the same God, but maybe a like, hey, let's respect the differences, but honor one another and go, man, tell, teach me more about what you believe. I mean, that old adage, God gave me two ears and one mouth that I might be slow to speak and quick to listen. Maybe I have something to learn from this person. Um, about some virtue or some, some aspect of their faith that like, would help me be a better truster in Jesus. Maybe I need my neighbor. Um, after all, Jesus didn't say, They'll know you, they will know you're my disciple by how many Facebook posts you put up about why Jesus is the only way. Or they'll know you're my disciple by how many bumper stickers you put on your car so you can zoom past the atheist and like, Make sure they see all your, you know, brilliance on your um, tailpipe. No, I, mean, I think it's, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. Uh, and there's a, that's a call that's hard. How do we love? And we can't love without respect. So let's respect ourselves enough to be willing to entertain those conversations. I tell the folks that come into the chapel house, Uh, there is no question you could ever ask that's going to scare God. I might get a little nervous and not know exactly how to talk about it, uh, but God ain't scared of your questions. He invites them. Your life is a mystery to be lived into. It's not something to be like, tuck those hard questions off into the side. No, engage them. And engage them with somebody you trust. They're probably not best used in an argumentative fashion when you're just trying to prove a point, but probably with curiosity, with humility, with somebody with integrity that you feel like you won't get railroaded. But ask those questions. I have a, I have a feeling our Savior is the kind of community where you can ask hard questions. What is up with this Jesus exclusive thing? It sounds really harsh. It's an okay question to ask. Wrestle with it. And I just want to leave you with this. You have a message to share, and it's not good advice. It's good news. It's freedom to the world. God has acted in history, and it is final. When he cried out, it is finished on the cross. All our striving for righteousness, all our, all our attempts to prove ourselves and to dust ourselves off and show that we're okay to the world, it's all been taken care of, guys. God's got this. His righteousness is now yours. All your guilt and shame and the things you're trying to hide and protect yourself from are his. You're loved. And so as we dismiss from every service, when we say, you know, let us go forth into the world to love and serve the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. 
Because you have in your vessel of clay, in your, this treasure in your jar of clay, your very being, good news for the world. So, Questions, disagreements, um, hopefully, I don't know if that, yes? You're making it happen. The Turlington? What's that? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have known because I didn't go in it. Yeah. That's a good one. I appreciate you saying that, and I think I think you're bringing up something that's a very real pastoral concern. Um, yeah, where you know, how do you understand faith apart from grace? How do you understand grace apart from faith? Which comes? What's the order there? Um, I, I think you're raising a really great um, point. Um, I think what we have going for us in our tradition as Anglicans is that sense of we can simultaneously, we can be like that man who's uh, begging for his child to be healed, and Jesus says, just have faith, and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. We can do the both-and thing, and kind of, and it's not a contradiction in terms. It's an honest assessment of where we can be. Um, and, And we have a prayer book tradition that can work itself into us, and so, yeah, did my faith allow me to grasp grace or did grace allow me to grasp my grace or to grasp the grace? I think they're, they're certainly intermingled there. I, I appreciate you bringing that up. D- d- does that address it? I, I, mean, I know it's not very satisfying necessarily, but... Yeah. And it's like 
looks like they get distracted or the coping abilities don't seem to be somehow our parents gave us something that enabled us to cope. You know, maybe it was because there was more discipline or there was, you know, who knows, we've this political correctness or or this avoidance. And it's not really conflict. To me, I look at it, it's a discussion. I don't want to talk with people I agree with because my mind will eventually shut down and close. I want to be able to talk to people that have a polar opposite view, especially people I respect because I don't want to That's a smart dude. What do they know that, what am I missing? Because maybe if I know what they're missing, I'm going to move their way. Yeah. But that's, to me, Sure. There's a lot of things that, Joe? Oh, I'm sorry. I should have given you this. Um, yeah, he, w- he was just bringing up a great point about um, how do we, you know, is this a matter of um, you can always compare different generations and are there certain coping mechanisms put in place by one generation that somehow becomes absent in another? Are there cultural aspects to that? And then he was just expressing basically a posture of curiosity towards I want to be challenged and I don't want to just talk to people who agree with me. I actually want to be the way to stretch and grow as a person is to interact with people who have other pieces of the puzzle that you don't necessarily have or more full information. Um, so I appreciate you sharing these things. Yeah, there's cultural changes. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, he's bringing up a great point, you know. He went to school with really smart people, but they, they pressed themselves to do 22 hours, and somehow they are able to kind of make it through. What is it? Uh, we always have to be careful not to judge one generation against another as though like one's superior, better than another. There's been a lot of changes. For instance, 150 years ago, there wasn't this wide swath of teenager um, time frame. You know, you kind of, you went from childhood to adult a lot faster. That's elongated. In fact, as they're discovering the development of the prefrontal cortex in the brain, in the human brain, your child, children are not... um, their brains, their prefrontal cortex, which helps in decision-making, put putting the brakes on, like rash decisions, kind of rationalizing things, that doesn't get fully developed until your mid to late 20s. And that's how much of that is like an evolutionary kind of element and how much of that is just a, we're understanding things differently. But we do have to recognize there's aspects to the culture that are different now than they were then. It doesn't make one superior over the other, but it does bring up questions. Why is, why is there so much stress and anxiety? The other thing I would just say is in an affluent society, you're going to have more mental health struggles because you're not just struggling with, am I going to eat today? 
you have a lot more that you're interacting with. So different parts of the world, you're not necessarily going to have these same statistics in a third world setting. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so, so there are different, the problems are different, you know, um, but it doesn't make one more significant than the next. Joe? Three minutes. Yes, the stigma, am I finding more students seeking help? There's, there's way less stigma attached to going to counseling, talking about your problems, even just admitting I might need medication or I might need counseling. That's in our culture becoming a lot more um, prevalent. Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, I, like I said, almost one in three students that I talked to have been on some kind of antidepressant or, or um, anxiety medication. <laughs> You're welcome. It was a condemnation of our education system uh-huh. and our culture. culture. Mm-hmm. What do we do about that? I mean, yeah. we're a Jesus culture here. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're here. It's Wednesday night. Uh, yeah. We're all older baby boomers, most of us. Yeah. Uh, but, but how do you address? Yeah. Well, I. I yeah, how do I address, he's asking, how do I address all the depressing things I started this talk with? I want to say, I don't necessarily see what I started with as depressing. I think I'm just, the first role in leadership is to state what is. And if we can't, in the church, we're always 30 years behind the curve. We are so like late to the party a lot of times on what's actually happening in the culture. But I think we need to understand Again, is Jesus the only way to heaven isn't necessarily the way the question's going to be formed on a university campus because, again, it doesn't feel that relevant. Not because it's not a good question and that deep in the recesses of people's hearts, that's ultimately the question they're asking. But it's just not usually phrased that way. And I was trying to set up what is right now so that we can better interact with what does evangelism in this context look like? It's different than it's been, and no doubt in 30 years it's going to be different again. And we're, we're constantly going to have to be learning and doing like our brother said, be curious about what, the other, what is the other. But you're, you're right, there's significant challenges in our culture, but that's always been true. Am I right? There's always challenges. Um, just re- read the New Testament. There were challenges. Um, I believe you had your hand in that. Are you saying Jesus is the way to heaven and good Jews and good Muslims won't go to heaven? Just tell me exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm saying there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, just as the apostles said. And the Jews and the... They can be saved by the blood of Jesus. I, that's, it's the same way everybody's saved the same way, by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, by his perfect life lived, his perfect death um, enacted and his glorious resurrection on our behalf. God is reconciling the entire world, everything to himself through Christ. There's going to be some mystery there, but yes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't in other words, in evangelism, I wouldn't encourage somebody, just go to a Muslim um, mosque and you'll find salvation. I, as a Christian pastor, I can't do that because I, otherwise I should just be a Unitarian or a Universalist. Like, ah. Like, like, 
if I believed that's okay, then I wouldn't be preaching because this is a really horrible way to make a living, and it's <laughs> and and you're looked at as weird. When Joe and I go to parties, and it's like, what do you do? It's like, oh, that's the buzzkill. I'm a pastor. I mean, nobody wants to talk to a pastor. It's just judgmental, preachy. Okay, I'm not the evangelist. My students are. As I engage their questions, though, they're enticed by, is there really good news? Is it really not up to me to keep the facade going or to prove myself to the world? Maybe God's love is real. Um, Him and then him, and I know we're almost out of time. Oh, sorry, time's up. I'll talk to you both afterwards individually, but I'm going to respect Joe's time. Really stimulating. Thank you so much. And uh, I know you'll probably stick around for um, if you want to uh, pin, pigeonhole you in, in, uh, in any, uh, with any other really hard questions. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I would love for you to find out more about the uh, growing, vibrant chaplaincy, uh, both at the University of Florida, Florida and uh, Florida State University. Uh, and as we have more information about University of North Florida, we'll share that. Uh, as well. It's coming along out of, mostly out of Church of the Redeemer, which is great. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.